I think medicine's about storytelling. I've been on admissions committees for medical schools before, and everyone always says, oh, you should be a chemistry major or a neuroscience major. I frankly think people applying to medical schools should be English majors. Welcome to the Book Society podcast. We are here with Dr. Mikhail Sekaris, who is a real doctor, not just a PhD like we usually have. He's a real medical doctor. He went to the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Then he did his residency at a little hospital known as Mass General. Then he got a fellowship at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Hematology and Oncology. So he's a hematologist. He's a professor of medicine. He's currently at the University of Miami Health System and the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, where he is the chief of the division of hematology. And to put it in the perspective that I am most comfortable with, that's like being in Miles Davis's band and being Miles Davis in the oncology world. So (laughs) he has been a national and international primary study investigator on dozens of clinical trials. He's written 400 manuscripts, which seems like a lot, and 600 meeting abstracts. And I got to be honest, that sounds like you just took notes on a lot of meetings, but maybe it's more detailed than that. He's the author of eight books and a frequent New York Times essayist. Sometimes friends of mine, I play a bunch of instruments, I write music, I do a bunch of things. They ask me how I have time to do it. I am from now on just going to refer them to your CV. <laughs> Make it sound like I don't get out that often. <laughs> you probably do. You're probably also a man about town. We're going to be talking about The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz, which is already really a classic from Riverhead Books, came out in 2007. If I were asked to be on this podcast, this is probably in the top five list of books I would have picked. No one has picked it yet. I've read it many times. I actually taught it, and I don't usually do a preamble, but I recommended this book for a class I was going to teach with my mom in 2008, and we recommended this and Lolita. And Lolita was, you know, a no-brainer because it was already a classic. And this one, the administration came back and said, we haven't heard of this book. How do we know it's any good? And that day it won the Pulitzer. Wow. So I'm familiar with this book. I love this book. It was such a joy to read it again. It is just different and amazing every time you read it. So now we know why I love this book, but more importantly, why did you pick this book? This book was recommended to me by my son, who is an avid reader when he was in high school. I usually listen to my son's recommendations because he is such a polymath when it comes to reading the different styles. When he really kind of hands you a book and says, this is the one that I go for. My son has now graduated college and is out on the West Coast doing some research in economics. So he did not go into the family business. I love this book on a number of different levels. First of all, the writing is just so wow. I love how Diaz breaks through the fourth wall he will tell this story and he'll tell it in a casual way. And then all of a sudden in parentheses, he's talking to the reader and saying, can you believe what just happened here? And then goes back into the story and he does it almost seamlessly. I love how he pivots perspectives of his characters as well. And it becomes a little bit of a riddle. We love riddles when we read any kind of piece. I'd love to see if we can solve the riddles along with the writer. So from my perspective, it's a little bit of a riddle. Whose perspective is it right now? And why is he telling it in this perspective? And he circles back in time. When I took writing classes, I was always taught that you start in the middle of a piece and then you work backwards and then you work forwards. And I think this is one of those ultimate books where he does that. He starts at a point of time and literally works backwards and then literally works backwards even more generations and generations in this one family and then brings it forward. He pitches this book in the setting 
of this family's fate, its curse. So you know from the very beginning, from the very first words, how it's going to end. Yet the way he writes it, you just keep rooting for Oscar. Yeah. And what a challenge. I would say he's likable, but he's certainly not your typical leading man. He's not. And yet he is. I've read this book a few times. And every time I read it, I go into it and learn something new and have a different perspective on it. So this time when I read it, there were two things that were new for me. The first was reflecting on his hero-anti-hero status. He's really this tragic hero, but more tragic in the Willie Loman sense. So in the classic Greek tragic hero, you have to start at some elevated place and then fall from grace. Willie Loman was the tragic hero who never was elevated. He started pretty low and then fell even further. And I felt like Oscar was that sort of anti-hero. For me, he was extremely relatable. There's a period of time that Diaz writes this. Of course, he brings up these sort of obscure social references, which of course I knew because I was about the same age at the same time. So for me, he became extremely relatable because of those points of reference. That was the first thing to me that was like a new read for this book. The second way this was a new read is the first time I read this, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, before I came down here to the University of Miami at the Sylvester Cancer Center, I was at Cleveland Clinic and I was there for almost two decades. So the first time I read it, it was, wow, look at this perspective on Dominican Americans and we don't have a lot of Spanish speaking people who are in Cleveland. Then I came down to Miami and I've been living here for two years and now I read it and all of the voices were different. And the accents were different. And the way they were talking is like what I encounter at work every single day. 60% of the people living in Miami are of Latin American background. Another 20% are Afro-Caribbean or African-American. And I'm the minority of 20% being white. So in my clinic, I have patients speaking like the dialogue in this book every single day. And it was just so much cooler and real from my new perspective. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm Puerto Rican. And I grew up in New York. So this was super familiar to me. One of the interesting things for me was that the Dominicans, they're our cousins. They're from an island 100 miles away, but it's a completely different culture. Actually, it's the same culture, but it's a completely different experience. I've learned that just becoming friends with some Dominicans over the years and reading this book. But I want to push back on something you said about Oscar as an antihero or not a classic antihero. And I would make the argument that Willie Loman as an American in the 1940s, 50s, sort of the peak of our prosperity, that's about as good as you get. Third century Rome and 1950s America are pretty much as good as you get as a human being. And he fell from that due to just the country changing. I guess you could make that argument or like his life philosophy of always be well-liked, really not carrying well into old age. But in this book, in Oscar Wow, Oscar He's a poor Dominican in Patterson, New Jersey, which is not great, but it's a thousand times better than being a rich Dominican in Trujillo's Dominican Republic. Yeah, that was very frightening the way that was described. And that wasn't the history that I was familiar with. Or anyone who hasn't read this book before, it's one where you've really got to read the footnotes. The footnotes are arguably almost better than the main text in certain points about teaching the history and what it was like to be in this absolutely fascist regime where... You had to constantly be fearful for your life and who could be ratting you out to the government. To me, that was, 
I keep thinking of the word frightful to think about living in a place like that as opposed to the relative freedom of America. And I love how Diaz constantly reminds you that this family's fate didn't give them the absolute freedom that other Americans might have, not to mention, of course, the socioeconomic disparities of growing up in Patterson in the 1980s. I was going to ask you if you had heard of Trujillo before you read this book. It seems like you haven't. I hadn't either. I had no idea that this happened. I've since read some academic books about his regime or more historical books about his regime, and it's like worse than Diaz depicted. Wow. I mean, it's horrible. On the one hand, it's horrible. I mean, it's horrible either way. But on the other hand, it's kind of typical Latin American stuff where it's like some dictator just exercises complete control over a country for a period of years. But yeah, to be inside of it through Diaz's voice was just horrifying. You mentioned before that the story was told from multiple perspectives, which it absolutely is. And that's one of the interesting things. And I wonder if you latched onto that because, and maybe I'm overstepping my metaphorical bounds here, but as a doctor and especially an oncologist, that's probably the way that you hear a patient's narrative, right? You hear it from the patient, then you hear an opinion from someone else. And was this really more familiar to you than it would be to most people? So that's incredibly insightful for how we gather stories. I think medicine's about storytelling. I've been on admissions committees for medical schools before, and everyone always says, oh, you should be a chemistry major or a neuroscience major. I frankly think people applying to medical schools should be English majors because of the essential component to storytelling. Think about it this way. A patient has an illness. So they come to a doctor and they tell the story of illness. That doctor then will tell that story of illness to colleagues in getting consultations and piece the story together and look for where the story has gaps in it. And then it's our job to order labs or radiologic exams to fill in those gaps so we can complete the story and come back to the patient with a diagnosis and then the story of treatment. So we hear that story from a patient, but that story has so many different perspectives. I specialize in treating acute leukemia, particularly in older adults, and bone marrow cancers that are similar to acute leukemia. So I often will have a patient who's about 70 years old, probably a slightly greater percentage of my patients are men than women because certain types of cancers affect men a little bit more than women. So my typical patient is a 70-year-old guy who's sitting in my office with a spouse or girlfriend and has kids who are either in the room or on FaceTime contributing the story. So I will talk to my patients about the story and depending on the relationship that he has with his wife, let's just say it's a he and that he is married to a woman, the wife will be very quick to jump in and add color to that story. And then the kids will jump in and add color to that story. And sometimes a fight will erupt in the office among the family members as they're all trying to get the story right for the doctor. Part of what I do is to try to piece together where truth lies in the story that's coming from multiple different perspectives. And then because of the conditions that I treat cancer and serious cancer diagnoses, acute leukemia, it's also my job to piece together the story of what the goals of care are for the patient and whether the patient is truly speaking on behalf of him or herself or on behalf of what the spouse and the kids want and try to figure out a treatment plan that really meets everybody's needs. So the storytelling aspect is very important. The last thing I wanted to add about that, the way medicine is different, and this to me has always been fascinating, is that in medicine, the story starts at time point zero and then moves forward in time. Time point zero is the first time that 
I have an encounter with a patient. So if you read a lot of writings in medicine, they're not as interesting because they don't start in that middle point, move backwards, and then move forwards. Well, actually, I mean, I would think, and you're the doctor, but you do kind of start in the middle because someone's seeing you when they're already sick. They're not seeing you before they're sick. They're seeing you when they've had a lifetime leading up to whatever brought them into your office. So you do have to kind of go back and figure out. It's absolutely a great point. So I agree with you. And one of the funnest things that I do is try to explore that history and try to even see if I can identify a cause of cancer. And there's some fascinating stories that my patients have told me about exposures they've had that I think have led eventually to the development of their cancer. For example, I've had a patient who served on one of the ships that went down during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he kept talking about how hot the deck was and how they couldn't sleep on the deck. It was so hot and humid. So they'd go down into the hull of the boat and sleep right next to the cool, cool nuclear missiles. So this guy had this incredible nuclear exposure that may have led to his cancer, right? So I think that's really the fun part of medicine is just like you said, starting in the middle and going backwards and forwards. I think one of the traps that particularly doctor writers fall into when they're just starting on their craft is taking it from, I met the patient and then there is no history before that and then it moves forward. My worst experience with a doctor, which was not at all catastrophic, but I had just like pain in my knee and you can't see from where I'm sitting, but I'm a cyclist. And my legs are incredibly strong because I've been doing cycling for a long time. And this doctor came in and she said, oh, you have this thing where your quads aren't strong enough and they're not supporting your leg. And I was like, can you just look up at who you're t-? like, I'm sure that's right for some people, but <laughs> yeah, like I couldn't wear normal pants if my quads were any bigger. <laughs> so I have a story that's a little similar to that. When I was a medical student, I did this gastroenterology rotation where we did a lot of colonoscopies. And you always start to ask some cancer screening questions as somebody's lying on the table about to undergo his colonoscopy. So we asked, you know, these general questions about bowel habits and blood and that sort of thing. And we said, oh, have you had any weight loss recently? And the guy said, yeah, I have. And we said, well, how much weight have you lost? And he goes, oh, about 25 pounds. We said, since when? So since the first of the year, which was just like three months ago, we thought, oh my word, this guy's got the big C. We've got to be careful about this. And we said, well, were you trying to lose weight or did it just happen? He goes, no, ever since they amputated my leg, I lost 25 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) And we looked down. It was the first time we looked at him. Sure enough, he had a leg amputation. (laughs) I like that he's got jokes though. (laughs) Back to Oscar Wow. Was there a particular character that you identified with when you read this book? And has that changed in multiple readings? Oh, another great question. At first, I identified with Oscar. And I think it's just that I'm inherently an empathic person, which I also think comes from being a cancer doctor. So you're always trying to think like your patients are thinking and looking at it from their perspective. And I keep reflecting back on goals of care for people because it's just so incredibly important with my patient population. So I try to think like my patients do. So for a while, I really related to Oscar. On the most recent reading, I realized what an important character Junior was, Lola's long-term boyfriend, and how he actually became the storyteller. He took the storytelling over for Oscar. It's almost like that was Oscar's gift to him. So I had a different perspective on it, thinking about that and realizing what Diaz was doing with this, how he was transitioning. We all know eventually... Oscar's fate, because it was prophesied at the beginning of the book. But 
recognizing that that meant that someone else had to tell this story at the end. I think I had probably the opposite answer to that question than I would have thought you would have had is that when I read it for the first time, I identified with Junior because I was at the time like a 27 year old Latin Susio living in New York. I was basically Junior. <laughs> so I identified with that character and I thought that the rest of it was interesting. But on this reading, I actually identified with Dr. Abelard because I now have two kids just thinking about not being able to control their fates, like just their physical safety. It was just so horrifying to me that I couldn't really look away from that part this time. You know, the last time I read it and I thought, ah, it was horrible. But just to imagine that like someone could take my children and do what they want with them, I can't, you know, you can't even imagine it. I have three kids. When my first child was born, all of a sudden I couldn't watch movies anymore where a child got hurt. It was the most bizarre thing. I was like, nope, can't do it anymore. And you start to read literature differently as well. Your priorities shift. And that actually happens a lot with my patients. As I mentioned, they're around 70 years old. And they'll say to me when I'll ask about prescribed treatment options and ask what they want to do, they would say to me, well, what would you do in my situation? And I always reflect back to them. It's a, it's a great question. And I say, but you know, I'm a parent who still has young children. And our job as parents is to successfully usher our children to adulthood. And until that's happened, we haven't finished our job. So my perspective on treatment is to do everything under the sun to treat cancer so that I can see my youngest child now to adulthood. My daughter's in college and the older son has graduated college. And I say to them, I don't know what my perspective would be when I'm 70. I honestly don't when your kids have gotten older. But when you're our age and have younger kids, reading something like this in a book, you think, oh my God, I could never live through that. If I were in your office and you told me today, we can try some stuff, it's going to be horrible, but you've got like a 30% chance of surviving, I would do it just because if I can be there for my kids, I would want to. If I were 70, I think I would just say, you know what? It's been a good run. We're just going to go out with a bang. You know, I don't know. You don't know until you're in that situation. The calculus definitely changes. And there have been studies that have looked at, particularly women with breast cancer, and it's described to women, okay, you have to undergo this chemotherapy, you have all these massive side effects, you'll feel terrible going through it for months, and it'll give you a 5% higher chance of being alive five years ago. Would you do it? And the vast majority of women say yes. So when you're actually in that situation, it's so interesting, you chose 30% as your number the number that patients choose when they actually have cancer is 5%. You don't know until you face it and until you've lived life. And that's why it's such a hard question for me to answer when my patients pose it to me. But when I kind of put it in perspective of their goals and what they're living for, they always figure it out. They always give the right answer for that. We've been talking about leukemia. Just for the listeners who aren't familiar with the stuff like me, first of all, describe briefly what leukemia is. And then where is it on the scale of horrible cancers? Like, is it like you get leukemia, you're done, or you get leukemia and it's like getting a mole, you get it removed, no big deal. When I started to specialize in leukemia, my best friend kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, leukemia has got to get a better press agent because it has this horrible reputation and it kind of depends on the type of leukemia you have. Leukemia is a cancer of the bone marrow. The bone marrow makes the cells that wind up in our bloodstream. And those cells help stop bleeding, fight infections, bring oxygen to our tissues, the platelets, the white cells, and the red cells. So when you have a cancer of the bone marrow, like any other cancer, it's the uncontrolled growth of cells. The bone marrow fills up with these cancerous cells, and the bone marrow can no longer make the good, healthy cells that we need in our bloodstream. So the greatest threats to somebody with leukemia is bleeding to death or dying of an infection. 
So some chronic leukemias, one in particular, chronic myeloid leukemia, is actually one of the greatest success stories in cancer therapy that we have, where with therapies that were first approved two decades ago, in 2001, people with chronic myeloid leukemia have a lifespan that's the same as someone the same age who never got a leukemia diagnosis at all. It is a freaking miracle. So for those folks, they have an amazing, amazing story about a drug that was developed that treats their leukemia exquisitely well. For people who have acute leukemia, that's a serious diagnosis. And that's one where we will often rush somebody to the hospital to start therapy within 48 hours. It's that serious and it's that life-threatening. Wow. What is the therapy that is approved that you just talked about that's very successful? Sure. So there are a bunch of therapies that are now very successful to treat chronic myeloid leukemia. The first one was imatinib. That's the generic name. The brand name is Gleevec. Then there were a couple more that came out just a couple of years afterwards, nilotinib and disatinib that treated just as well, if not better. And now there are another handful of agents that have come out since then. So I'm really interested in the process of how these drugs get approved, how they get developed and how they get approved. And you are somewhat of an expert on that. And that is a perfect segue into what is going to be next week's episode about Mikhail's book, Drugs and the FDA, which is just out. So if you're listening to this podcast in real time, we'll see you next week. If you're binging it, we'll see you in 10 seconds. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. It is edited and co-produced by Santiago Ramones, who's an awesome dude, who has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is also really good, interesting conversations with interesting people. If you like this podcast, it would be really great if you could rate and review it. All you got to do is scroll down on whatever app you're using, tap five stars or however many stars you think. And if you want to write a review, write a review. Algorithm's going to algorithm. If more people like it and more people tap it and more people review it, then more people hear it. If more people hear it, more guests will be on the show and I'll be able to keep delivering the awesome guests that we all love and keep feeding you with an interesting list of books that we might want to read. This episode and so many of the episodes that we do in the fall and in the spring on the Book Society podcast are done in partnership with the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair takes place in person the week before Thanksgiving in November, but it happens all year round. You can go to miamibookfair.com. You can listen to archived recordings. You can hear some of the great events that Santiago and I have been privileged to see already. We're recording from the Miami Book Fair right now. So if I sound a little bit different, that's why. It's an amazing event that you should check out. They are so kind to partner with us and some of the most amazing guests that you've heard on this podcast have come courtesy of the book fair. So check them out, miamibookfair.com. I have three kids. Well, I would say three that I know of. And when <laughs> yeah, I, me too. because I know you look at me and you think, boy, that guy's such a player, right? <laughs>